The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet native economy. But I guess um, first things first, one Pudgy is one Bitcoin. I had to ask you about this because you're a big, <laughs> big Pudgy fan. And it seems like if you do any Googling about the Layer Zero Labs team or look at your team members on Twitter or LinkedIn, it's just penguins. <laughs> How do you feel? I mean, feels feels good, man. Uh, that's that's quite the trade. So uh, I bought us all punks in 2018 or something. I don't remember when, but or 2018, 2019, somewhere in that. They're reasonably cheap, not the cheapest punks and punks just went like straight line up. Like it was insane. It was a massive run of a punks. And originally we were like, we're never going to sell the punks. Like they're just awesome. We all loved our punks. And it got to a point where I was like, I think we have to sell these. Like this is like really insane. Um, and so I, I sold the three of them and my co-founder, Ryan, my CTO was just like, we're selling, you know, uh, real estate in Manhattan. Like this is, this is terrible. I can't believe you're selling our punks. We sold like the exact Pico top. You should be thanking me. But after that, he was just like, we're going to find a new thing and we're never going to sell it no matter what ever. Um, and right after that, Jeebus introduced me to penguins at 0.03 and we bought like, you know, I think we're the second largest holder of penguins. So like we bought a lot of them. We found our penguins and we're just like, we will never sell them ever. I've been joking with Luca that I want to like find a way to, to delegate burn our penguins so we can never sell them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it just became this internal me, but we've, we've held them all the way from like almost zero until now. And uh, we'll, we'll keep holding them. And we gave, we gave uh, everybody on the team, not this Christmas, but the Christmas before, uh, pudgies as a uh, as the holiday bonus um so that's worked out well for all of them yeah that, that is incredible uh, a little bit jealous on the sidelines i think probably 21 i bought bought some sort of derivative some like plushy penguins or something like that and you know <laughs> that hasn't been as good of a trade but incredible back to back from punks to penguins then also getting kind of the team involved in that upside got to give you props <laughs> it's been good for sure yeah but um to, to get to the topic of today actually interoperability and the whole importance of that which which we're going to be focusing on through what you're doing at layer zero now to kind of preface the more in-depth discussion that we're going to dive into i was wondering if you could just like quickly describe what an omnichain interoperability protocol is in like wall street terms yeah i think that, like the way that i think about it the way that i frame it for myself internally is like Long time ago, you had a bunch of distributed execution environments that just existed. This was like computer clusters at Stanford, at DARPA, at whatever. You used to want to run a program. You'd get a floppy disk with your data. You'd fly to Stanford and you would like run it locally on that machine. And that was like the only way to do it. And then we invented this really nice stack of technology for the internet. And now all of a sudden you and I are talking and we watch our Netflix and like we do everything, right? And the base primitive of that that enabled these these distributed execution environments to communicate is is just the packet, right? And all a packet is like, do some compute on one computer and generate some bytes, move the bytes, and then interpret the bytes on another computer. So just compute, bytes, compute. And that's it. That's the entire life cycle of like a packet. And that really simple kind of dumb primitive enables everything that we have today. 
A layer zero is effectively the same. Like we didn't want to build it early on. We had no intention to start a company. This was a derivative technology after us struggling for a very long time to be able to do the thing that we wanted to do, which was simply send a message from BNB chain at the time to Ethereum without a central coordinator sitting out here triggering events on both chains. And so layer zero is just arbitrary contract invocation with a bytes array. That's it. It's just invoke a contract on chain A, i.e. some compute, generate an array of bytes, Move the bytes and invoke a contract on the destination chain, i.e. do some compute. And that's it. You can do anything within those bytes like you could do in a packet on the internet. Any logic that can live in a smart contract can be um, implemented across layer zero. There's no like restrictions or anything. It is just you should think about it as that base packet with the distributed execution environments being blockchains themselves. Got it. Thank you. That's very well explained. I think easy to grasp as well. Now, Maybe to dive a bit more into the purpose of operability or interoperability in the blockchain space, like you mentioned before Web3 and computers, we never kind of really had to think about these different types of networks as an end user at any point. You just used it, things flawlessly working together. In the blockchain space, we've gotten kind of, I don't know if it's a good thing, but kind of used to the fact that you have a certain closed ecosystem where it's pretty hard to move from one place to another too. So why is interoperability so important? Why is it a problem worth solving in Web3? Yeah. So I think it's, I mean, we look now and we say, oh, so seamless. You just send stuff around computers, but like that wasn't actually the case for a really long time, right? There's actually, we're, we're very close to having a totally private internet, right? So Mac wrote their own, Windows wrote their own, like everybody's writing their own adapters to try to like own the internet effectively. And ultimately sort of the most open and, and permissionless protocol ended up winning out, right? And we had TCPIP and now you can have Windows computers connect to Macs, like all of that stuff. There used to be no like real easy way to do that. And there were custom interfaces needing to be written for like all of these environments, right? That was like a, a very large undertaking that wasn't just naturally there. So like even in the internet, like we existed in this terrible state that we exist in now. Um, so what does it matter? It matters that the way that I view it is all of these different chains have pretty strong trade-offs. I think the ones that have very muted trade-offs of like incremental change in either way, a lot of that will get washed away as, as the underlying scale. But if you look at the difference between Ethereum versus Solana versus Arweave versus Celestia, right? Like these are strong orthogonal trade-offs to the way that things are approached and to what you actually want to do with the underlying. And and naturally, those things are going to exist and you're going you're gonna to continue to have the trade-off and you need some way to be able to go back and forth those environments. You won't be able to do everything you want to do on Ethereum or an application won't. Application, just like today, you look at any modern application, you have like tons of microservices using all these different database structures. Like you have all these things that are hyper-optimized to do a specific task extremely well. And then the amalgamation of all of those tasks is like an output to the end user. And that's uh, what the application is on top, right? It uses each of these things as a tool. When you build an application now, a lot of times you're going to want to, to use these things as a tool. So like you will never be able to store everything you want to store on Ethereum, but like, so now you might have this bundle of storage that like sits in Arweave or Filecoin or somewhere else. And then you roll that up and you do this really complex computation on Solana and the result goes to Ethereum. You store permanent state on Ethereum. You have like ephemeral execution and uh, computation being done elsewhere on another chain verifiably. There's all of these different things you might want to do. And also each of these, because of these trade-offs, these, these ecosystems, like the number one use case we see today of any 
any message transfer is, is value transfer, right? So like layer zero, there's $50 billion transferred between chains last year alone. And so a lot of that is just like people need a way to get in. L2 is actually a perfect thesis. My original thesis for L2s was like, listen, people are going to use the native bridge to go up to layer twos because why wouldn't you? And then maybe they'll use layer zero because they want to price risk and bypass the roll-up window. They don't want to wait seven days to come back. And so I thought we'd get used coming back from layer twos. We've actually seen, and and this is like 50% of our overall volume, is what people want is when they've made the decision to go up from layer one to layer two, they want horizontal composability. They want a uniform experience. They don't want to be on Arbitrum and want to go use an application on Optimism and have to wait seven days and pay two ETH L1 fees, right? That defeats the entire purpose. And so like 50% of our volume is inter L2 transfer of just in that horizontal composability layer. And so when you think about that, like, that's what people want is a homogenous experience. They want all of that to be abstracted away as much as possible. And they want to be able to treat all of this as largely the same. Functionally, they just have an app, the user has an application they want to use. And the application has an environment that it wants to exist in. And all of those things should come together in like a, a seamless user, a seamless experience to the end user. They don't know about the chain. They don't know about the gas asset. Like that's where all of this is moving. And the only way you have that is with, is with like very well-formed interop. Mm-hmm. Agree. And what you said about like the homogeneous experience, that is what we need to strive for as a space. And I feel that that is also when you look at like discussions for people looking from the outside in, I've seen many people mistake layer zero for a blockchain itself, maybe because of when we think of interoperability, some people might connect it with like Cosmos or Polkadot, where they're trying to build this ecosystem of interoperable blockchains, but you are not a blockchain. Could you maybe in the first question that I asked you laid out in pretty simple terms, how you technically work with the different contracts. But could you go a little bit deeper into technically what layer zero is and what kind of the most important smart contracts of your protocol are? So I'll start with what I what we didn't like about the existing system and what we're trying to solve. So a, lo- a lot of interop are blockchains. And this is this is where the confusion naturally comes from. Most people have their own chain. And it sits here and everything connects to that chain. And that chain becomes like a canonical source of truth. So if you have an application A and an application B, it just routes through that. It's hub and spoke model in the way that everybody understands it. There are a couple of problems that we find with that model. One is that there's no direct relationship between a message on source and destination. Everything is just the destination implicitly trusts this middle chain with every message that's coming out, which means if that is even corrupted for a matter of a couple of blocks, it can arbitrarily write the most malicious state possible to every single application. So you can think about it as like cataclysmic systemic risk to every application tied to it, drain every LP pool, drain every lending protocol, mint infinite stable coins, everything that you can possibly do, it can do like that. And if you think about what that needs, like that isn't necessarily that like that happens in other environments. You see that happen on blockchain. Polygon is having 200 block reorgs, not these days, but had them very often. Now it's like 24 block reorgs. It's, it's, you know, it's gotten a lot better, but like even really developed blockchains are, are still having these like fork states environments. And so pure systemic risk around that. We've seen that like amazing if you're going to sell a token of just like, because of course, if this thing is securing hundreds of billions of dollars, it needs to have hundreds of billions of dollars of economic security. Uh, that That's a great vision. I can see a lot of people why they would want to buy into that. But what we've seen is those have never really scaled past 300, 500 million, maybe a billion dollars of economic security. Um, and so you start to have this honeypot where you're like, that needs to scale to so much to secure these hundreds of billions. And it'll also be like 
incredibly capital inefficient. You're going to have $100 billion just sitting in this attestation vector just to make sure that other $100 billion is like able to function. It, it doesn't make any sense. We never thought that model would scale. We also think it's, it's pure, pure systemic risk for the overall ecosystem. So we didn't want it. We, we thought there was a bad model. There's also this concept of, of parameterization. So if you think, what is the cost, right? What, what these chains are effectively selling you is a validator set. They're saying, hey, here's our set of validators, all the incentives, here's the economic security around it. So here's the amount of security that you're getting and it costs $5, let's say, right? And now every application using it needs to pay $5 and they get the same amount of security. But you have this really disparate need of applications. You have like, you know, lending protocols and stable coins are dealing with like hundreds of millions of dollar transfers and liquidations and market makers moving funds around and settlements and all of this. And then you have like a NFT project, literally issuing free NFTs or one cent NFTs that are meant for fun or for whatever, right? And there's just no way that when you're opting into this point of security, either these people are getting way too little security or these people are way overpaying for what they need for security, right? And so layer zero, the entire thesis was monolithic structure will never work. Monolithic parameterization is a fool's errand. And so how do you make like the most modular structure possible? So layer zero is there's an immutable endpoint that lives on each chain. That endpoint can never be modified. It's entirely immutable, right? So that just deals in nonce management. Once that is deployed, layer zero, the protocol exists. Anybody can come in and run the pieces of the protocol. They can be DVNs, they can be executors, so entirely permissionless. Now that the protocol exists, it will exist until the end of time or until every blockchain makes breaking changes. Nothing we can do to, to shut it down, to control it. There's no external forces that can force that. So again, exists in the way that the Uniswap contracts exist. But within that, there's a messaging library that deals in validation. So this started as a Merkle inclusion proof. So we're going to take a block header and a transaction proof, combine them, do a Merkle inclusion proof and say, hey, this is valid. This is our original thesis was we can't make a bet on what that technology stack will look like long-term. And so what we did is the messaging library that exists, it's entirely mutable and we can never remove it. So we can't change it and we can never remove it. So it will always exist. But in an append-only fashion, we can always add a new one. So if a new technology comes out, we can always continually add it. And then anybody can opt in. So if you're dealing with tens of billions of dollars, you might want to stay on the old one that's been battle tested for years and years, and you don't want the newest one. You don't want to use ZK or you know any any of the new technology that's coming out. That's fine. You stay there. New protocols can tell you this is a cheaper, faster, better methodology for validating. We're going to use that over time that gets battle tested. Other applications can opt in, but everything exists. So immutable endpoint, immutable append-only version of messaging libraries. And then outside of that, it's just infrastructure. Then it's just, you have DVNs, they're effectively security actors who, you know, this, they can look like anything. It'd be a full validator set like IBC. It can be an existing third-party set. Like one of these middle chains could be a single DVN with this system. The application can run it themselves. You can construct that security set however you want. And they can be pieces that are stacked together. You have this entirely configurable security stack. And then the execution layer is just basically gas abstraction. It actually technically lives outside of the protocol, but it makes it so if a user is going from Ethereum to Solana, they don't need to have both ETH and Sol in their wallet. They just pay everything up front on the source chain and the whole execution flow gets executed on their behalf. Yet again, a very comprehensive explanation of how that works. So thank you. Now, when we think of interoperability, one thing that comes to mind is bridges and the biggest kind of targets of hacks and everything bad that has happened in crypto. So you alluded to security, the importance of that, how you've kind of solved that issue in one way. 
And then secondly, other challenges related to interoperability are gas and just the complexity of what's going on. So outside of security and what, what you already laid out in that previous answer, what are like the technically the hardest parts to solve to achieve very seamless interoperability and like a flawless user experience? Yeah. So the hardest parts, like, I'm not sure that anything is, is that hard. I, I think it's, it's where, I think it's where you want the end state to lie. I think adding new VMs is tricky. You have to understand a VM at an incredibly deep level to create this, again, homogenous user experience to have the experience of a, you know, the Solana VM and the Move VM all act identically almost to the developer experience within, you know, the EVI. It's just a totally different beast in a lot of, in a lot of the design decisions and how, how they do everything. And so that side is like tricky, but, it, but it's just a function of time. It's not overly difficult. I think the bigger things for us, the biggest thing, so everyone always worries security wise, always worry about the validator set, and all these things. These are things. If you look at the, of all of the four to five billion dollars of bridge hacks, every single one of them have been either smart contract related or upgradability related. All of them, right? So uh, you look at upgradability. This is the Nomad hack. This is the recent socket hack. This is the wormhole hack. And the wormhole, ten million dollar bug bounty they paid out, and then again because there was like one point eight billion dollars at risk because they were upgrading these contracts in a, in, a, in a way that was messy. You could say Axie Ronin and Harmony Bridge, which were more social engineering, were validator set because the people got control over that. But a lot of that lies in the, the underlying contracts as well. So like almost all of this is is through through upgradability, and that is a vector. So like it's so easy. It would be so easy to just build something and you're like, okay, here's a thing. It will just keep patching it whenever we want, like a web two company, right? Like we'll just keep upgrading it and it'll be great. Don't, don't worry. We definitely won't mess up. And like, you don't, you know, don't worry. You can trust us all of that. Right. When we built, we really built on the principles of like immutable permissionless censorship resistance. Like those were the things that we cared about. So building something where like you have to get it right the first time. And then everything comes into these messaging libraries that are upgraded over time. And now we've deployed a second endpoint, a V2. So there is some ability, but like Uniswap, and it goes from V2 to V3 and V3 to V4. It's not like, hey, we're going to auto-migrate all your money over. Trust us with all your LP. It's a new protocol and people can use it. Still the sort of the same underlying backwards compatible and the layers are okay. But I think building in that lens is definitely the hardest part relative to what other people are doing. But, but I think people wildly, wildly undervalue what that means on the longest possible term horizon. So like censorship resistance is, is probably the thing we care about the most and not necessarily for like the most intuitive reasons. Um, like, yes, we want to be censorship resistant. We don't want some state nation state actor or anything to be able to come in and say, hey, actually, we don't like like these groups of people. Like now the... Um, you know, emerging markets can't have access to any of this. Like all of that should live at the application layer. Enforcement should live at the application layer. Like absolute application should stay compliant, but they're, they're like the technology layer shouldn't be the one that enforces that stuff. And so once it's deployed, it's there, it exists. People build on top. Regulation can be layered in on top, fine. But I think the biggest thing is like censorship resistance on the packet level really matters in financial applications. So you can think about like, People really love to hate on, on HFT and traditional finance, right? High-frequency trading, like nobody loves Citadel front-running every Robinhood transaction and all of this stuff. But HFT is extremely meritocratic relative to what we will end up with with some of these other messaging systems. So like HFT, at least you have to be the fastest, right? At least it's 
if you are the fastest, you get there to the exchange and you can execute your order ahead of everybody else. But it's like a race and the market share gets distributed around. If the interoperability layer, the messaging layer is not fair in ordering, has the ability to drop packets and sensor, one, you can see why this would be problematic from like an election standpoint, right? Like you're running some governance process and you can just like conveniently start dropping packets and blame it on system malfunctions or whatever you want, right? And like only count votes you want. You can do all of this messy stuff. But from a financial transaction, you can imagine there's a hundred transactions going through, number one to a hundred, and they each have an MEV of one. So you should have a surface of a hundred units of extractable value over, over that set. Now, if you do not have non-sorter enforcement, if you don't have this property of censorship resistance, you have the ability for the person moving that layer to rearrange those transactions wherever they want. And they can rearrange them in a way that the entire surface now is an extractable value of, say, 250. So there's much more of a tax being extracted over the surface in a way that they can, your transaction can be held back to give you worse execution, to ensure more profit for like the layer that is moving this, the transport layer. You have it so that... Um, you can give preferential pairing. So like the Robin Hood and Citadel relationship, you can have it so that every message that goes in our blockchain gets front run by like one specific group. Everyone that goes like, oh, you're going to buy this thing. Like it's actually more valuable for me to have my, you know, other person who have a relationship buy that first. So I'm going to insert them. All of this stuff can happen. And when you ask yourself, why do some of like the most aggressive and predatory HFT firms in the world want to like build an interop and and own the messaging layer. Like this is why, right? If you build rails like that, that are able to be perverted, able to be exploited, they will absolutely be exploited over time. So we spend a huge amount of effort making it so that those rails, again, entirely immutable, entirely censorship resistant, and the entire system is permissionless. If I, if we disappeared today, blew up, went away, whatever happened, anybody will be able to run it. It will exist forever. And so like building like that versus building something where you're like totally upgradable, we can change it at any point in time. We can get some regulatory order that changes the entire way this layer works. Like all of these things can happen. Really, really, really dangerous long-term. And when we think about rebuilding kind of the parts of the financial system on top of that, you, I mean, you absolutely will end up with a rails that is in, in entirely, you know, possibly even much worse than what we have today. Like if you think HFT is bad today, now it's a single actor who owns all MEV, gets a front run every single transaction and gets a reorder for pairing. So like you can never have packet fairness like you have in a, in a data center in, a, in the internet today. True. Yeah. Your your approach is very much in line with the core ethos of crypto. And that's, I believe, how it should be. Now, as you're building infrastructure, this is not anything that users directly interact with. You're building tooling for developers to kind of plug into to may build more seamless applications. What does the process look like from a developer's perspective to integrate with layer zero? Yeah. As Dead simple as it could possibly be, developers focus on two things, send and receive. So pack an array of bytes, like put the bytes together however you want. Bytes get moved on your behalf and then interpret the bytes however you want. So you think about it at the, at the very lowest level, that's the only thing the developer needs to think about is send and receive. What data do you want to send? How do you want to interpret it? And so extremely simple. There are layers of complexity that a developer can add on top of that, like 
do they want to set their own parameterization? How many block comps you're waiting? How, you know, all of the things that go into security and thinking about the application side of things. But if it's very basic, if all you want to do is say, I want to get up, I want to send a message, like that's all you're doing. Send and receive. What data am I sending? How am I interpreting that data? That's it. Got it. And at a very practical level, could you share maybe some examples of the most compelling use cases or success stories that you have of projects currently using Layer Zero for interoperability? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's something like almost 42,000 contracts built on top of Layer Zero now. It's 100, 100, pushing 110 million messages. Um, so did about 100 million messages last year. So there's, there's a lot of volume in the scope of the market you know, for interledger transfers between the chains that we support, we're like 95 to 97% market share in the last year, something like that. So almost all interledger transfers within the 50 chains that we support are done by layer zero. Applications, still like 70% of that volume is, uh, is value transfer. So that's still the dominant use case. Again, like $50 billion transferred over the last year, roughly. Stargate is the largest bridge in that ecosystem. It's done about $30 billion of that transfer volume. So that's definitely one. But then you see things, Radiant, which is a lending and money market, things like PancakeSwap moving their uh, token to all chains over layer zero. Trader Joe, so we got a b- bunch of these DEXs. Uniswap to Avalanche. And then from there, you have people starting to do more interesting things. So that's like the vanilla case. The vanilla cases are moving assets around. That's kind of what everybody expects. More interesting cases are applications who want unified global state clusters just came out as this namespace, the CNS rival of namespace. So how you propagate state across multiple environments, a very interesting problem where you do. So like one thing we saw that people start to do is like claiming is you might have a farm or something on Ethereum and Claiming becomes very expensive for small uh, small stakers, small users. But now you have the ability to basically move that out in a message and basically say you can claim on any of these other chains that are incredibly cheap, right? So now like this, this accessibility for doing that, now can you push out to the cheapest layer because the source of truth is still there canonically? Um, you see lots of interesting stuff in, in gaming. Now these days is actually like, it's been very interesting how much that's picking up and so, uh, yeah, they like people, people are doing very creative things in terms of like, I saw it kill a boss here on this chain and that propagates a message that mutates your NFT that lives on Ethereum that then automatically syncs to like your Twitter hexagon and, you know, your Instagram profile picture that were synced to Twitter at the uh, time. And so there's like very interesting dynamics that people are doing and, you know, it's all, it's all just state. So for us, our only goal is build the lowest level primitive with the highest possible utility. And so we think we should be super unopinionated. I joke all the time that like Vitalik definitely didn't think that the primary use case of Ethereum for many years was going to be like dog coins, right? What you want to build is like the most expressive environment that people can build amazing things on top of. And so we really, really focus on just that low level primitive and making that as easy as possible for people to be able to build whatever they want on top of. Yeah. Let the market do its thing, especially now that we're in crypto. You cannot predict what's going to happen. But I mean, those use cases make sense. Majority is, of course, value transfer. But it is great to hear that there's also these more innovative experiments going on because that, that's what you need to see. Uh, because also, I'm sure that you guys as a team as well at Layer Zero, you, you learn by seeing what people actually start building. You're like, oh, that's really cool. Um, are, are you able to say like between which chains are you seeing most activity or like interoperability between where's the where's their most demand to kind of build and move value to and from 
Yep. So, I mean, we built a nice tool for this layer zero scan that has like all of the pathways and statistics, anything you would want to see. But but functionally, as I mentioned before, about 50% of the volume is, is inter L2, right? So how you think about it is this horizontal layer between Arbitrum, Optimism, Base, ZK Sync, you know, all of the all of the existing layer twos. There's a massive amount of volume done. And then everything else changes from there. Aptos, Ethereum, all popular pathways. Avalanche, Polygon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And I'll probably like add a link to to that dashboard for sure into the show notes as well. Maybe over overlay it here in the video as well, because I was exploring that a bit. You've done a great job in visualizing and just showcasing how transactions and value flows. Wait till the end of this year and, and you guys specifically on like the data side, you'll you'll be able to do a lot with it. I hope I hope it yeah, gives gives some interesting insights across like very broad ecosystems. So for sure. It was a beautiful dashboard already. So <laughs> good job. It's always great to see you you're consciously putting effort into the transparency and making making it visible to anybody who wants to see what's going on. Now, kind of related to that and just everything that you're building, I'd be interested to hear what, what the kind of team composition over at Layer Zero Labs looked like. So who was contributing to the core development of the protocol? So Layer Zero Labs has 70 people now, still extremely large engineering skew. So we were... Uh... It's funny, people people view us as, you know, they're like, oh, you raised all this money, you got, you know, very sort of large following on Twitter and stuff. You guys are, you know, you're, you're, I hear all the time, like, whoever's doing your marketing is, is killing it. And it's almost like as an, as an insult from other people, like, oh, you guys are so much marketing. We didn't have a single marketing person ever in the company for the first two and a half years. Like literally Ryan and I, my co-founder did a hundred percent of the BD calls all of the architecture with, you know, with obviously with other people involved. And then, and then a hundred, like we just, it was us writing Twitter posts and the medium articles and like everything was just us, nobody external. And so even now at 70, we're like 35, probably 35 or 40 engineers. So just over half on the engineering side, um, you know, legal ops, finance, one person on comms. So it's still just like a single, single unit comms department. BD, I think we have seven now, four people internal recruiting, like pretty normal, all the all the stuff you would have for for starting to to run a company, but it's 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 very largely engineering driven and then obviously an amazing design and, and front end team. And yeah. Got it. Yeah, that's funny what you said about like the first two years and people say, Oh, you have an amazing marketing team, but the best marketers are usually the people with the vision and the ones initially building <laughs> building what they are. It's like you, you don't need a specific marketing team for that. Now I wanted to move on to speak a bit about if you're the financials behind Layer Zero and your, your like business model, we can call it that as of today, and then how you see it developing going forward. Yep. The way we, again, something we were very, very adamant on is Layer Zero, the protocol, needs to exist as core infrastructure. Like we cannot be paid, Layer Zero Labs cannot be paid some tithe out of this. We can't like, it cannot be paying to some third-party external parties. So we view ourselves as the relationship between Ethereum and consensus, right? Like Ethereum is its own thing. It's its protocol. It will live, and live on its own. Consensus should build things that are value accretive to the ecosystem as a whole and can monetize those things. So obviously MetaMask and Fura, like all of this core infrastructure that came out of consensus has, has done so much to grow the Ethereum ecosystem. Like these are tools that are used uh, really at scale has created this, you know, multi-billion dollar business that, that sits above and, you know, MetaMask had $400 million last year and, you know, their swap function alone. So like these have turned into like very real businesses. So we view it. We are very fortunate. We raised enough to have 
very long runway. Like we can really focus on building for the long term and focusing on that. So our layers or labs focus is surely on grow the protocol. How do we build things that are value accretive of the protocol? So this is layer zero scan. This is the executor itself and having this gas abstraction layer. This is the ability to run pre-crime, which we haven't even talked about from the security side. It's a huge difference from any other messaging protocol right now. Uh, all, all of this stuff we build is things that are tools and use the underlying layer, but not built in natively to the underlying layer. Anybody can run these things. Anybody can build tooling. It's still a global marketplace. Okay, got it. So, so when we think of like, value accrual from the base protocol level itself there is no like set or built in it should stay entirely it should stay entirely within the base protocol the value accrued from the underlying protocol should not go to us in the way the value accrued to ethereum like you know block rewards i'm going to consensus right got it yes so no distribution of any value accrued and then you focus on developing layers on top of that which can then be monetized in in more different ways very clear. Got it. Yeah, that's the decoupling of layers are in the protocol and layers are labs. Yeah, I think that is a great approach. But yeah, it is always a tricky balance as well to build like sustainable ways to then operate and build. But like you mentioned, you're in a good place. You've raised a good runway. You have capital, and you can kind of put time into working on more creative methods to monetize the the layer on top of that. Yeah, we're. I mean, we're we're very confident in our ability to create a sustainable business on top. Um, yeah. Yeah, th- that's great. Now. If we think of at a like very high level, someone assessing interoperability protocols and trying to say do relative analysis between them, what metrics at the moment do you think are best to kind of measure the performance of something like layer zero or the value of it? Yeah. I mean, like it's inherently noisy at this point when it's, you know, people are getting $300,000 airdrops per account for Celestia and all this other stuff. Like a lot of, there's a lot of speculation around the entire space with every protocol, uh, name any of them, right? And so it is It is inherently noisy. We try not to focus on the absolutes right now and focus on like growth, right? What you want to see is from our side, I think there's a couple of things. I think I'm evaluating a protocol. I'm looking you know, from the security side, are the contracts upgradable X and Y, Z. All these things are just like, is does even beat the bare minimum. If we just want to look at comparing them based on actual usage, I think you want to you want to look at contract to growth over time. So how many contracts are actually deployed? How many people are building developer activity functionally, right? And you can look at contract growth and how many of those contracts are actually used regularly. So how many are sending X messages a month? For us, the internal metric is like contracts that send a thousand or ten thousand messages per month, right? That's like an active contract in our eyes. So I think that's like one of the, probably the strongest signal of any ecosystem is, is pure developer activity. Obviously, number of messages, dollar value transferred when you're transferring dollars, especially for something like bridging, if there's fees associated with it, then it's typically more real of a, you know, some, somebody's paying a fee to do it. There's like more real value assigned to it than, let's say, I don't know, sending something random between like two chains that have very low gas. So a bunch of things you can do to try to, to parse out what is, but for us, it's it's developer developer growth for sure, overall messaging, overall value transferred. Those are three of the metrics we care about. Got it. That's clear. And if we think of total addressable market sizes, I think this is a topic that's super interesting to explore in the blockchain space because it is a question mark. When we think of like, TCP IP, which you alluded to earlier on, which enabled the internet to be as seamless as it is. No one's, I don't think, ever thought of putting a dollar value to that market if that protocol would have some sort of like a capture mechanism built in, if it would have been a Web3 protocol. 
I can tell you very, very, very clearly if TCPIP, so right now all of the all of the value went to the telcos, to the ISPs who have monopolies on on access to the internet, right? Look at even Google Fiber trying to go around the US. There's so much regulation and uh, protection around that layer. But if you just look at global telcos, you're talking three to four trillion dollars of value just at the telco level, not anything else above. If TCPIP was owned was an owned layer with value accruing to it, it would be the most valuable company in the world. No question. There is zero, you know, there, there, it's not even something you can debate. Exactly. And, and that's fascinating. And then when we think of like the pitch for layer zero and what you've raised funding with, is it, is it that, is it, is it the same? It is the TCP IP protocol layer with a value capture. Mechanism. Yeah. Hyper leveraged bet on the proliferation of blockchains. And this is everything, right? For us, it's, in the world before we existed, everybody's bridges. We've always been pure generic messaging. So this can be public ledgers between every blockchain that exists. This can be, you know, we running private ledgers at the banks or any of this stuff, right? Messaging layer is uniformly any distributed execution environment. And so when you think about layer zero and when you, you know, think how do the large investors on our capital area think about it. It's, it's, yeah, go back and reinvent this layer and have it rather than going to the tell you disintermediate the telcos completely. And you basically have the entire value accrual layer owned by the broad base, owned by the users. Yeah. Yep. That is, I, I like that vision of the future. <laughs> I, I hope that does happen. Now, do you think interoperability is a winner takes all type of space? I think it has to be. I mean, I, I think this. I think this is one of the big, one of the big. I think naturally for anything, anything like that, right? You're going to see network effects just matter too much, just tying everything. Nobody wants to have different semantics, different security properties. And I actually think what most of the people, what most people view as competitors to us, but they're really again, what they're really selling you is their validation layer. They say, here's our set of. 19 special actors, you can trust them, they're safe. Here's our set of proof of stake to you know, distribute whatever, right? They're all trying to sell you trust in a way. They're trying to sell you that. For us, that's not, and then as a, so they're selling you that. And then as a, as a secondary effect, they're saying, and, and you know, we'll, we'll do the transport stuff as well, but like that's what you're really buying is, is the trust. And for us, we've always taken the stance. So we're completely agnostic to that. All we're building is the transport layer. You can actually use any of those competitors within layer zero through DBN adapter. You want to use their validator set as the thing to secure your message? No problem. You can do it within layer zero. You want to use a layer two bridge? No problem. You can do it within layer zero, right? What we're building is that transport layer and that unified semantics for developers and how the sort of world of these distributed execution environments connect. We we are not trying to compete on like building this validator set that is the most trusted or do anything right. And so fundamentally, like very different problems. They're they're trying to effectively solve both. We think that that will get commoditized down to as low as it can possibly be commoditized down to. And the transport layer really is like the thing we want to spend our time on building. So so is is it so that at the moment that transport layer and your approach to interoperability, it's it's not like crowded. So you don't have like direct competitors even again they're, they're from a pure like agnostic transport layer side without building the validator set there's there's very like basically maybe one from building the validator set and trying to do everything together there's three or four right you have your your axillars your wormholes of the world your tcips now we're trying to enter but again if you look over the last year literally i think 90 
seven to 98% of every transfer on every chain that we're on was done by layer zero. So I think people position themselves as, as being competitive in this, but to date, it really hasn't been close. And I think a lot of that, again, a lot of people want to use these things within layers or they like the validator set. It's like, it's just like having your own layer one. This is a middle chain, right? It's its own chain, its own validator, its own economic security. If you can have that thing securing messages as part of an overall stack, great. There's value to that. That actually can be monetized and can get paid for doing that service. And that's what the validator set is like built to do. The transfer layer and all the stuff they're trying to like tack on around that is, is almost like a secondary, you know, a secondary effort for that. But uh, we, we think there's a lot of value in these validator sets. And I, I think people are starting to use them internally. So I, I think, again, most of this stuff will end up within the underlying transfer layer, but I don't think there will be many. I just don't think there's a world in the, the same way, right? There's only one TCP IP today. I guess you can, you know, there's different methods, I guess, for sending a, a couple of different things, but universally, it's largely only one. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, the market does usually tell us a lot of things. And if right now the market is giving you 95 to 97% market share in terms of volume, <laughs> transactions that is a pretty good position to to be in at this stage so it'd be interesting to see how that uh, develops as well because usually when you're in that kind of position then of course people kind of recognize that oh you're doing something right and in the crypto space of course where where generally the kind of cost of forking or entering and competing has been pretty low it's gonna be interesting just at like a high level to see how that works Let's see. We've seen a lot of convergence to our to our approach. I think again, those are stats over the last year. I think right now, at moment in time, especially there's a lot of hype and speculation around whole airdrop, and so the numbers have shifted. I think you go back three months, it was something like we are doing four hundred thousand messages a day, three hundred fifty four hundred thousand messages a day. Wormhole was doing about a thousand to two thousand. Axlar was doing about a thousand messages a day, and CCIP was doing like sixty messages a day. So that was like the landscape. Now, fast forward, and I think Wormhole is doing closer to 30,000 a day, something like that. So about, you know, we're probably at about 90% right now, 92 to 90%. But yeah, some, something like that. Yeah, and it makes sense. The airdrops guide attention. It's a narrative-driven space for now. Actually, related to that as well, it, it, it's no secret that Layer Zero has been built with the ability to have a native, native token in the protocol as well. And I think that if I remember correctly, you've put out that the distribution of this token is expected to happen within the first half of 24. Are you able to speak about where you are in this process today? And then maybe a bit about the purpose of this token? Yeah. I mean, so in general, it has always been our approach. We don't like to talk about things or give dates ahead of time. We just like, we when we launched, we just came out of stealth and we're like, here's this thing that we built. We're presenting it to the world. We're just universally kind of taking that approach. Our approach had been the same, but then about Six to nine months ago, things got really crazy with just people now starting to speculate on a bunch of stuff, got very noisy, and we were like, okay, we're, we want to give some sort of clarity. So all that we've said is H1 this year. It will happen in the first half of this year. We haven't announced anything else around it. We'll definitely release full sets of everything. But in general, especially because in this space, you, you do see a lot of convergence very quickly. We tend to just like to build. We, do, we don't like a lot of outside noise. We like to just focus on trying to build the thing that we believe 
is functionally the the best thing, the thing that like needs to get built, right? And so we just, yeah, I don't know. We 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 like to to build quietly and then and then kind of release with a bang. And I, I think the approach is is sort of the same here, but it will happen in H one of this year. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. So you're not uh, getting into the current trend of farming farmers via point programs and everything like that. You're you're just focusing on building. No. Again, we wish if it was up to me, I like we don't love the noisy environment. We don't love not being able to see like perfectly clear growth metrics or stats. We've never said a single thing ever prior to this. And that was only because the like rampant speculation got too crazy. Yeah. We just like, we want to keep building. We want to focus on utility and like we gave some clarity so people can settle down. But so it actually sounds like you're building for the long term. I, I know you are, but like it's, it's still, it's just so not obvious in crypto. As of right now, what are like the biggest both growth drivers and challenges uh, for you guys? Yeah, uh, I mean, growth drivers for sure. Like the way we view the world is if you're sitting at 90 something percent market share, like what do you do? Do you sit around and wait for the market to grow? Do you try to expand the market yourself or do you find ways to sort of verticalize and do other things. And I think we're, we're, we think through all of those things, right? You, you can't, I can't force an application that is already on layer zero to send more messages. It's like not something that is a practical use of our time. So it's how do you get new applications that don't exist today, new use cases that don't exist to start to do? How do you make it easier for people onboarding? How do you grow the overall market? Or how do you verticalize and, and take the existing stack? provide new sort of utility to then developers. And so most of our time is, is spent doing that is just, again, the only lens we think through is the lowest possible level primitive with the highest utility. And that's just like every, every decision ultimately boils down to that for us. Mm -hmm. Got it. And as you're working with at the moment, you're integrated with like over 50 blockchains. So you really know what's going on in this space. Do you have a take on which of the current approaches to building blockchains seems to be the most optimal one. Yeah, we have we have some pretty strong opinions internally, but we really relentlessly just say like the protocol has to be unopinionated. So I I talk and we were just talking about like Vitalik and dog coins. I talk about the same thing. Like listen, I've been I touched crypto for the first time like 2010, 2011. Like I was running racks of Bitcoin miners in my garage in 2013. Like I, you know, I was minting Gen Zero Crypto Kitties. I was farming yams at 300 million percent APY. Like I didn't see the NFT boom coming. I didn't see DeFi summer coming. Like all of this stuff, like you can be early and not see. I don't need to necessarily predict what the world is going to look like and whether it will be only very strong orthogonal layer one trade-offs or ETH only as a settlement layer with a thousand layer twos. Both of those worlds are extremely good for layer zero because we focus on utility. Again, like half of our, everyone always set, thought like that layer two thesis was very bad for us. And we're like, it's 50% of our volume right now. It's actually like the best thing that's ever happened is, is this proliferation of layer twos and the need to have that homogenous layer there. So I think we have pretty strong opinions on what we think are, are like the best environments to develop in. I think we're pretty strong opinions on what we think is is doing a good job of scaling so far and what's likely to play out. But we, we don't really, it doesn't translate into what we're building internally because we like, as soon as you make that, and that's actually why we end up building the V2 of layer zero is like unintentionally, all of our effort in building early on was around Ethereum. And a lot of the design decisions in, in V1 were very EVM specific. And I think as we went 
to Aptos and Move as we were working on Solana and Cosmos and some of these other chains, we realized that there are things that we could generalize more across all environments. And so the protocol itself is just, again, always meant to be as unopinionated as possible and always meant to be as, as sort of expressive and extensive as possible. That's a good approach. I actually resonated a lot with that in our positioning with Token Terminal as well. Got to be objective, unopinionated. We're building tooling. Every single approach at the moment brings value to the space. We're experimenting, we're learning, we're seeing what works, what doesn't. And we're just trying to standardize the data so people understand what's going on. And you're just trying to help people abstract the technicality and, and the bad UX of crypto and just get messages and value to flow seamlessly through different ecosystems. So you don't want to be too opinionated when you're in that position. Final question, just to wrap this up, covered a lot of ground. You mentioned V2, working on that. What can we expect from you guys in, in the coming months outside of anything we already touched on? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking looking over at this board right here, and there's there's eight products that I have right on, right on my whiteboard on the side of my wall, two of which independently we think can can probably bring about. So we've done about 100, a little over 100 million messages lifetime. Both of those we think can do on the order of about 100 million annually, right? So we have a lot, a lot, a lot that we're building, a lot that we want to launch. Um, just just takes time. So I uh, know it's going gonna, gonna to be a very, very busy next six to 12 months for us. A uh, lot, lot to do, but we're, yeah, I don't know, we're focused, we're in it. I think, I think you'll, you'll be hearing a lot from us over the next couple months. Awesome. I think that that just radiates off of you. You are honestly very excited about the position. I love to see that and super excited to hear that you have uh, cool things coming up. Can't wait to see how everything plays out there. Thank you so much, Brian, for taking the time to walk us through the current state of Layer Zero and everything related to interoperability. This was uh, super valuable, I'm sure, for a lot of our listeners. And I hope we can do this again at some point once you've ticked off some of the uh, items on your list on the whiteboard there. Amazing. I'd love to. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me.